Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Hello, welcome to this Sandbox Story, which is an interview with Dr. Bob Lehman. Dr. Lehman is the current president to the American Optometric Association, with his term coming to close in June at Optometry's meeting in Chicago. Welcome to Sandbox Stories, Bob. Thanks so much, Scott. You know, from little old Toledo, Ohio, to the presidency of the AOA, what more can you ask for, right? It's been quite a cool journey, and I, I don't know if you knew this, but I have two other uh, previous optometry presidents of the AOA that are from my hometown. So tell me who they are. Tim Kime and Kevin Alexander and I. All from the same hometown. Mm -hmm. I love it. I love it. Well, let's talk about your childhood, your upbringing. Uh, where did you grow up and what was it like? I spent my whole life in Toledo, Ohio. I have a younger brother and older sister and around third grade, my mom had a nervous breakdown and was never really the same. So I had to get kind of self-reliant early on. And it wasn't a great environment for encouragement because she just wasn't you know, able to be a mom. She, uh, my dad was an engineer who worked for Libby Owens Ford. He was an industrial engineer. And now that I look back, I realize he was a very linear thinker and kids aren't linear. So I was always getting the stare, you know, and uh, uh, little subtle things about my misbehavior. And I kind of end up, I think I was a class clown kind of kid because I, I was so starved for attention at home. And, uh, you know, I was uh, yucking it up a lot. I did crazy things like throw my brother in the dryer and turn it on and we called it Sputnik. Uh, you know, different, you know, the things guys do when you're seven, you know. Right. So, uh, uh, was was have, growing that was was that in the industrial belt the the auto belt where you are it's kind of going from there up toward Detroit? Yes, it is. It's only about fifty miles south of Detroit, so it's the farthest you can get in Northwest Ohio. Right. Well, uh, just briefly, uh, this idea of your mom's you know sort of battle is today's mental health arena and care certainly better than it was then? Would she have benefited from what we have oh. today? No question. You know, she was treated with Haldol and slept 16 hours a day. She had electric shock treatments and we had to go back and introduce ourselves as her kids. Um, it left her kind of like the people that, that have dementia where they repeat the same thing over and over and over. And I think it just short circuited everything. And it was difficult for her. And she, fortunately, I guess fortunately, she kind of passed away early at 63 and it was a blessing. She's in a better place. And it was just a, a little more freedom for my father, too, because he had to take care of her all the time. And it, it was just a burden. He he never really asked for it. And it was interesting. So my brother and sister and I all kind of uh, came out of that environment. It was very toxic while we were living there because, you know, my dad was, had a temper. And I think he solved his pain with vodka every night. And, and it just didn't, it wasn't healthy. So, uh 
we, we turned out okay. My sister was a software manager for uh, Owens, Illinois, and my brother's a CFO for the beer distributorship for all the Michelob products and Anheuser-Busch. So, uh, and I have a wonderful living as an optometrist. So uh, I think it all came out fine. Was there a family member or something else that sort of gave, got you through? Uh, we all leaned on each other. Uh, not really. I mean, I... I had to get to undergraduate school to find mentors and leaders and people to guide me. You know, I had a couple of very humiliating experiences when I was a freshman in high school. I went to a big high school and there was a thousand people in my class and I was real tall. I was six one as a freshman, but the trouble was I was only 115 pounds or something. So when I went for basketball, I got nerfed into the stands. When they made us uh, wrestle in, in physical education, I was the praying mantis on the mat, you know, Mr. Stickman. So uh, my my future as a sports person was marginal, but I always ran and I enjoyed running and I was on the track team and I ended up having a lifetime of running. I found great peace getting out and uh, running half an hour a day. I did it for 50 years. That's awesome. So what veered your life toward optometry? I was at uh, undergrad school, and one of my good close friends' mom worked for Tim Kine. And she said, what are you doing with your life? And I said, I'm in pre-med. I'm not sure where I'm going with it. She said, you need to see this optometrist I work for. He loves what he does. And so I, I called him up. I, he asked me to come to lunch with him and then asked me to shadow all day. And it was such a cool thing. I thought, you can earn a living doing this? This looks like a lot of fun. And I just got the spark. I was an emetrope. I never had an eye exam until I got to optometry school. And I had one inflamed eye one time the summer before I started optometry school. And my parents had gone to ophthalmologists. So I went to that guy. And he was a gruff, unhappy person. And he asked me what I was doing. I said, I'm going to optometry. He goes, why do you want to do that? And he was really diminishing of my profession. That made me sure I wanted to be an optometrist, just to kind of spite him. That's interesting. Well, you ended up at Ohio State. Yeah, you ended up at Ohio State. I went to undergrad at University of Toledo, and that was where I had all kinds of really good mentors in the uh, student activities area. And I, I, I got psyched up about leadership opportunities, and they had some really good people that took me under their wing uh, one of them in particular was the advisor for an, an honorary that I was leading at the time. And he turned me on to, to personal development things. And uh, he's the one that reminded me, your history is not your destiny. Wow. So put it all behind you. Just move forward. Be the person you're meant to be. Wow. That's strong. And and it was probably obvious going from the University of Toledo to Ohio State University's College of Optometry. Did you look elsewhere or was it really just had no choice? Right Once I left my house, my dad said, oh, go have a good life over there drinking beer and uh, I'm not going to help you. You figure it out. So I was on my own financially, emotionally, everything from about 18 on. And uh, I wasn't really well prepared for my freshman year of, of undergrad because I was only 17 when I started, I have a late birthday, but I figured it out and ended up getting the, the grade point I needed. And uh, it worked out OK. I just had to pay my own way. So I had some very interesting jobs. I was a mail carrier in the summer. I was a waiter at Steak and Ale. I was a doorman at a Hyatt Regency. 
uh, greeting people and parking cars and carrying luggage in for fun and profit. Uh, I was a I was an industrial solvent identifier by smelling trichloroethylene, perchloroethylene, and methylene chloride to identify what was in the the drum so that they could then distill it back. And I now that I find out those were all you know cancer causing agents. Oh well, yeah. you didn't tell me that when I was in there. So I just did whatever I could to get uh, my way through school and pay my own way. When you were at Ohio State University's College of Optometry, I mean, there's so many wonderful ODs that came through that program. Who were some of the mentors that supported you through that process? You talked about undergraduate advice and guidance, but who supported you at Ohio State? Some of the ones that come to mind, Tom Quinn was in my contact lens area, and he was always very enthusiastic. Uh, Kevin Alexander certainly uh, encouraged me. Uh, Errol Augsburger was awesome. Joe Barr, they were all there really supporting students. And I just felt like I could really soar in that environment. They they encouraged leadership. I got a chance to be involved in the Ohio Association. I was class president several times. Um, I, I got involved in AOSA. And it's interesting because my AOSA leadership class, we were the executive board in 1982 or 81. And they went on to become the president of North Carolina, the president of Texas, the president of Florida, and the president of Ohio. That was the secretary, the treasurer, all the leadership of AOSA in my class. And I was the Ohio president. So let's talk about that. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, let's talk about that. I think that we all know that that's a changing part of optometry. Not everyone wants to or is cut out to do volunteer work, but those of you that were driven already in in optometry school, then go on to do it in practice. I mean, you've got to be proud of that. What is your, what is your takeaway? What's your encouragement now as president of the AOA to those who might think they can't do it or feel like they won't do it? I, I will tell you that you always get back more than you give. And it, when you have a servant's heart and a giver's heart to take care of your patients, it just carries through to the organization that helps support your profession. I always felt that optometry was such an, uh, a dynamic profession. It has changed so much since I graduated. When I graduated, you couldn't even use diagnostic agents. And now look at the, the scope of practice that's available to us. So I've had the, the pleasure of seeing 40 years of the evolution of a dynamic profession. I'm so proud of it. It has given my family and I such joy that I just want to get back all the time. And I think a person who has been given abundance is um, warranted an opportunity to give that back somehow. And I wish all of our students would feel the gift that they've been given in this profession and, and uh, feel the same obligation to make it better. Let's talk for a moment about practice. You have a multi-location practice. How's that going? And what's it been like working with the new generation of graduates? Oh, it's going great. I, uh, I, I really Joy working with younger people that keep me on my toes. And I just a recent example, I had a patient with a scleral lens issue and my young associate that just graduated last year solved the problem instantly. And I, I know that there's uh, every OD comes in with a certain set of interests and skill sets that they're especially good at. That's their, uh, uh, I, I, their special skill. And having more doctors around the office to work on with that kind of um, reliance has been really joyful. 
My partner is a 2010 grad from Ohio State, and his wife is also an OD that graduated the same year. And it's just a joy to work with them. And I just last week had a chance to install him as the president of the Michigan Optometric Association. So he's involved in leadership. I met him at the Rayburn building during an AOA on Capitol Hill event. And he had gone there as a student with, as an intern with Greg Hicks, who you probably know, and a good friend of mine from Ohio. So uh, I, I really like working with people that love optometry. Well, let's talk about this, which your partner just went through. Um, we talked about why leadership's important. You are probably the best suited person to talk about why optometric associations are so critical to the profession. And we know the back history. We know the importance of advocacy at the capitals across the country for diagnostics and therapeutics. And there's certainly others that are going on today. But give us your from the top of volunteership today thoughts about optometric association importance. Well, I'll tell you that in St. Louis and in Washington, D.C., there's 85 people that work full time to advance your profession. And there's overhead to do that. But they're involved in all the aspects of communication to the public, which we can't do ourselves. All of the aspects of of federal legislative uh, oversight and regulatory oversight, which is a very specialized area. There's so many things like NEI. And USPTF and all these uh, decision-making organizations in D.C. that we have to have a presence, and you know we, we can't do it ourselves. And there's also the aspect of advocacy. We can't move a state association like Virginia to win their recent legislative uh, uh, fantastic laser opportunities and advanced procedures privileges. That's not happening without associations steering the ship. So I just feel that the people, you know, everybody's a member. Some pay dues to help with the overhead and others just ride free. And, you know, if you want to be a freeloader, fine, but just don't complain when the pressure, you know, things don't go your way. One of the best examples of membership in the association is this $2.1 billion of federal aid for for COVID for our profession. And I don't know if you knew that or not, but that was not earmarked for private practitioners. It was for hospitals when it was first out. And our advocacy people knew Senator McConnell, who runs the agenda for the Senate. And they talked to him about how important all of our small businesses that run optometry practices are for our communities and how we need that support to get through the COVID problems. And he understood And they wrote everything so that private practitioners and other doctors could have access to this instead of just hospital systems. And without our uh, advanced advocacy dealings with this particular senator, that never would have happened. And that's what our association does. It steers the ship with the right people at the right time. And the outcomes are way better because of it than they would otherwise. That's really well said. I was just talking yesterday to a good friend of ours from the great state of Illinois, Dr. Fitzbrandis, who has been deeply involved in advocacy for the profession, both at the state and national level. And he brought up this point that I think I'm going to go to with you, and that is, he calls it the optocrat, right? Our our political party isn't a party, it's optometry. And we have to do our job with people on both sides of the aisle 
Has has advocacy for volunteers from optometric associations like the AOA gotten harder because of such the, the, the such polar opposites coming out in our political parties? And and what does that mean for us going forward? I would agree that the current political climate is is creating a lot of polarization, and it's hard to pick a volunteer out of that environment and have them be an optocrat who only goes for whichever candidate is most aligned with optometry's goals. And it's, you know, I, I don't know why, but I think just the media access, social media, the meet, you know, the uh, news media, all those things are having a, a much more influential position of moving people apart instead of together. And it is, in the state level, a little more difficult to find optocrats. And the same thing for national level. We must continue to make that known and for that to be the, the thing that happens because sometimes one side of the aisle has the power and sometimes the other. And if you're not with the one that makes the decisions in your favor, oh, well, sit out this time. So I mean, we just we just have to sign up for relationships. It's politics. Right. It's how our governments work for hundreds of years. And we need to need to go there. I want to talk about your experience in AOA. It's been a long journey to the presidency. Give the audience who might not understand a sense of what your volunteer life has been in AOA. It's going to, I know you're going to feel like it's going to come across like, oh, I've done this much and so much. We all know it takes a lot. Yeah. So just put all that aside. What, what have you done in all of those steps? I'd be really interested to hear all of them. I got excited by being appointed when I first got out of school on a, a student program, it had a crazy name called the Student Indoctrination Task Force. Now, that doesn't sound good, but I would go to colleges of optometry as a young, reasonably recent grad and talk to them about the benefits of membership and how our organization is so important to our profession. And that just got me on the podium talking about things I love. And the next thing I know, I got involved in membership issues, both on the state and national level. And so I was, pre I was uh, the chair of our membership division for about 13 years. And then I branched out into areas of communications. I was involved in several committees and a chair of some communication committees. And I also had commitments in clinical care issues like glaucoma project team, diabetes communication project teams. So I was just fortunate that I, uh, I was reappointed by presidents for 39 years. And that's where I am now. I've never not been a volunteer for AOA except my first year out of school. And, and so I, I just have a good understanding of the enterprise. I have a good understanding of the tremendous people that work on our behalf as staff for AOA and our state associations. Really dedicated people are moving the ball for us locally, statewide, and nationally. And I just wanted to give something back to that and, and uh, honor it a little bit more. And I feel like I've still got room in the tank to keep doing that. My pilot light isn't going out anytime soon. Well, there's so many of you that have gotten to this point and feel like you can continue to give, and we're all better for that. It's about a 12-year period, roughly, from... Roughly 11 years. Uh, yeah, there are, uh, there are 10 positions, and then the 11th is the past president position. Okay. And so I... Along the way, I was raising four kids. I'd never wanted optometry to take precedent over my family life. So for about 
10 years, I was just the moderator of President's Council, where all the presidents of the state associations meet twice a year. And that kept my hand in it a little bit without being overcommitted. And I enjoyed that time so I could still be involved with my son's scouts and my kids' sport events and coaching and all the things that are important. So uh, that was, uh, you can still find time to be a good dad, a good husband, and and a good volunteer. If you just balance things out and, and give the appropriate time and don't waste your time. That's well said. Tell me about those kids. Uh, where are they at? What are they doing? Uh, I have four, and they're all outgrown now. The youngest is 24. He's getting married a year from September. He lives in the Toledo area, and, my, and he's just finishing up an engineering degree. My next daughter in line, the next youngest, is in Miami, Florida, and she works at a travel agency. She's sort of bilingual because she studied in Spain, and so her travel agency specializes in customized trips to Cuba. And then I have a next one up is a daughter that's, 30, 30, and she is getting married in October here in Toledo, and I'm excited about that because she just moved back here from Rapid City, South Dakota. And then my oldest son is 32, and he lives in Breckenridge, Colorado. He just started, a, he's been working in the tree service industry as an arborist, and he just bought his own truck and trailer and started his own business as an entrepreneur. So I'm real proud of him to have that courage. That's awesome. You spoke a little bit about involvement in scouts when your kids were young. I know you're proud of time you spent in the community, for example, doing uh, scout master kind of work. Tell us about what that commitment was like. Uh, well, from when Andrew, my youngest, was in um, kindergarten, that's when you start with Cub Scouts, all the way through his senior year when he was an Eagle Scout, I was uh, uh, an assistant scout master with three other really great scout masters. My brother was one of them. He's a couple of years younger than me. And uh, the pinnacle of scouting is to go out to Philmont Scout Ranch in New Mexico and hike right. in the middle of nowhere and, and you know, be self-sufficient for 10 days or nine days. And I went with my son and his son and a team of about nine other um, students. And I was like a surrogate dad for them. It was really fun. But I thought this is going to be great. I'll be spending all this time with my son. Well, he was more interested in my nephew, and they were the same age, and they were having fun. And I was in a tent with my brother, yucking it up like we had never done for 30 years. It was it was unexpectedly fun and joyful. So uh, it, the ability to get back in, in scouting helps a lot of young boys that don't have male uh, leadership or role models in their life. And especially now, there's a lot of broken homes, a lot of single um, parent families. And it's there's not a huge number of people volunteering to be leaders in those organizations. And our community needs that. It was very rewarding. AOA is very proud of its leadership efforts through mm -hmm. the work of people like past president Andrea Thaw and many others. Tell us just a little bit about what's going on with leadership training and the availability of it to many optometrists that are early in their career. I, I wonder if most people know, and I think they should. But we have a leadership institute that we're trying to incorporate for all the young ODs 10 years and under out of in practice, because we feel like the more tools we give them for public speaking skills, for leadership skills, the better they can advocate for our profession for the next generation. And the more they'll be engaged with our organization and our profession over their entire career. And so Andrea has been leading a really neat uh, committee that they do some homework, they've got a leadership uh, studies and also personal development tasks 
and they are on Zoom meetings once a month. And they also have uh, meetings in person at Optometry's meeting coming up in Chicago. And in the uh, IOA on Capitol Hill, we had a group. So we're trying to engage another generation to help them understand it's fun, it's rewarding, and the profession needs you. There is such a shortage of leadership in the community and in the, the profession that we really need to spend our time encouraging that. And we've got some real good sponsors that are helping us support that. So that's been uh, an issue in my heart to help promote uh, a path to better people in the profession through organizations that can can lift them higher. Uh, great work. Great work. So I wonder, as we start to get toward the end of our discussion, what might be something people would love to know about Bob Lehman that they don't know? Oh, uh, I am a closet car nut. Uh, my son and I are restoring a 1968 Firebird convertible. He likes cars, too. And so that's how I get my mind off the matrix. It, it helps me to get away either doing yard work or washing a car. And I don't have to think about all the things that are rolling around in the inbox. So I have found what works and it keeps me mentally stable. And it's probably a lot better than some of the alternatives. So Totally better. Uh, I have a kind of a very interest in how things work. And, and, you know, my dad being an engineer, he taught me how to fix cars and do things like that. And that's how I uh, just get my mind off of everything else. And they probably wouldn't know that. That's a great one. The last thing, um, what is the best advice you can recall being given while you've been in this great profession? I would have to say that the idea that God put you here to do great things, and it's up to you to find what that is and to bring it out and help others find their uh, special skills. And it's very rewarding to do that. I've, I've found great joy in, in helping my kids find what they're good at. And uh, it's just we've got so many new people coming into our profession that are so talented. I hope they just reach for the stars. There is no limit to how uh, accomplished you can be if you just do a little bit every day and stay focused on uh, getting better. You know, it's important to set goals, but it's also important to aim for improvement all the time. There's no finish line on the, the personal development journey and uh, you just have to engage it. And uh, it's been something I really wish more people would understand. You know, Bob, you're one of this long line of very humble AOA presidents. There's just no exuding pride that people take. But I bet that you, as you look back on it in June and, and you wrap up your year of presidency, you can take some pride out of what you've done, can't you? Uh, I, I'm, I feel like I'm just um, another foot soldier doing what, what I'm supposed to do. And there's nothing special about it. I, uh, I just do what I'm put there to do. And uh, I am pleased that I didn't screw it up. But I, everything that's been accomplished has been accomplished by our team. It hasn't been just me. And I'm first to admit that in my practice, it's not me. It's my team. And in life, it's the, the team. And, and so I'm really aware that uh, I'm just part of what leads the thing forward. But it's, it's not all me. And I, I really enjoy the people I work with on the board. They're great people. They're dedicated. And I, I want to keep inspiring them. Well, Dr. Bob Lehman, congratulations on this important year of service. I'm certainly grateful, and as the audience, for what you've done. 
and I'm proud of you. I really am for all that you've done for what we have gotten out of this year of, of your leadership. Thanks for joining me on Sandbox Stories. It's been a privilege and an honor. Thank you. To the audience, thanks for attending. And you've got time. Go to Optometry's meeting in Chicago in June. Until my next Sandbox Story, be great at all you do.